Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Right to Read Initiative. I'm your host, Dr. Catherine Garforth from Garforth Education. And today I have the pleasure of being joined by Andrea Frick from Alberta. And today we're going to be talking about her journey to becoming a teacher. Uh, welcome, Andrea. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks. Awesome. So how, let's start out with the, how long have you been teaching? So I've been teaching since December, 2020. I was really fortunate. I will get into it. Of course, I did a bachelor of arts degree and then my after degree in education. So in Alberta an after degree is when you have a previous degree and your after degree is only two years. I was really motivated to become a teacher. So I finished it in a year and a half. And I would have actually finished it in one year had it not been that they had set um, at the university I went to set times when you have to do your practicum placement. Um, but I finished as soon as my practicum was done, I had a job the next week. So I've been teaching since December 2020. So almost three years. Awesome. Mm. So, well, let's go back to the beginning then. So when did you start knowing that you wanted to be a teacher? You know, that's a good question. I would say growing up, I always really liked talking to other people, building communication skills, play-based learning that involved building relationships, interpersonal ones with peers my age, even peers that were a few years older than me or a few years younger than me. But I would say it wasn't until I was about 13 years old when I joined the Air Cadet program. So in, I live in Alberta, Canada, and the Air Cadet program, it's a nationally funded program in Canada for youth between ages 12 to 18, uh, basically to follow the motives of the Canadian military. You learn things like citizenship, uh, survival. When you're an air cadet, you're really fortunate enough, you're given the opportunity to get your glider's license or your pilot license. You get to go to summer camps across Canada. It's a really fantastic program for youth who are looking to build any teamwork skills or make new friends. And when I joined the air cadet program, I got to meet kids from across Canada, do summer camps with them learn really cool things. I would go swimming. It was just such a highlight of my life, to be honest. Um, and I still think back really fondly on the program. But one of the best things about Air Cadets is it teaches you all about citizenship and teamwork and even lesson planning. So you go through the ranks in the program and usually it's about, you typically spend about six months per rank. So when you start out in the Air Cadet program, you're an AC, then you become an LAC, corporal, flight corporal, etc. Once you become a sergeant in the air cadet program, that's when you're a senior cadet and you can start teaching the junior cadets. And I'm really proud to say that, you know, when I was 15 years old, I learned how to lesson plan. I learned how to take the air cadet curriculum, so to speak, plan out a lesson, have an intro, an activity, a conclusion activity, et cetera. So it was, wasn't really until Air Cadets when I was 13 years old that I, I started to dabble with instruction. I thought, hey, you know what? This is actually kind of fun. And I like organizing the kids, well, the cadets, 
between the ages of 12 to 13, 14, I started to think, wow, I really like doing this mentorship stuff. And I really like instructing the kids and just seeing um, their learning, right? Incorporating the visual, auditory, kinesthetic approaches to learning and seeing them make connections is what I think really got me interested in teaching, but also just building relationships and that communication piece too. So I really enjoyed that air cadet piece. Um, and that's really what started it for me. And then, you know, I was in air cadets until I was 19 years old. And then after high school, um, I got my first job. Actually, I had a job in Air Cadets too, where I worked at a summer camp. Um, but my my first real job, um, you know, I I started to really like working with kids who had diverse needs and kids who, um, you know, required some extra support or needed some extra mentorship. So I started to get into respite work. So. Mm -hmm. Respite work is essentially um, supporting individuals who may have developmental disabilities or developmental delays. Um, so I worked as a respite worker for about four years, and this is what supported me through my university degrees. Um, I supported kiddos from age five to 17 um, with varying uh, developmental disabilities. Um, and I really enjoyed it. And I, I still remember that there was a, a few little kids actually that I supported and they had a lot of difficulty with their reading development and their communication. So I ended up going to the University of Alberta and I was doing my Bachelor of Arts in linguistics and French. And it wasn't, it was a mix of doing linguistics and French and then also doing respite. I actually considered going into speech language pathology. So I thought, okay, you know what? I really enjoy the communication piece, the reading piece, um, learning all these kinds of things like the international phonetic alphabet, phonetics, phonology, syntax, semantics. And I thought, you know what? This would be really cool. I really do enjoy speech language pathology, right? Um, or just areas within linguistics. Anyway, so it was a mix of that and then doing respite work that I, I really started to take an interest into these things. But I think it was actually when I started to work one-on-one -on -one with kids, when I was doing respite, that's when I kind of swayed and thought, you know what, I actually could see myself doing this with a group of kids and having really direct instruction. Um, and I started to get the gears turning about communication and literacy, things like that. And I think mm -hmm. also too, you know, when I was doing my first degree, my Bachelor of Arts in Linguistics and my major in Linguistics minor in French, um, again, it was all about that communication piece. I, I always wanted to learn a second language and I thought, well, what better than to learn French as my second language? Now, I started learning French when I was 18 years old and I wasn't brought up in French immersion. I did French in grade six. Um, but that was it. I never did it in junior high or high school. So I actually ended up living in Montreal for a month, trying to teach myself the French language. And then I moved abroad to France. So I lived in Lille, France for six months. And again, it was just that piece of putting yourself in a situation 
where you don't know the language or you're not fluent in it and trying to get by, I think that really set in stone, um, these are all just background things that I think really shaped who I am as a teacher and why I am so passionate about the science of reading, ensuring that teachers and students have the tools they need to be successful in the classroom to teach literacy and to build those communication skills. So I think it was just a mix of doing cadets, doing respite. My first degree had a big impact. And then as well as learning a second language, I think really shaped who I am and kind of that foundation piece as a first uh, or as becoming a first year teacher. So, yeah. Awesome. So by the time that you had finished your bachelor's, mm -hmm. did you already know that you were going to go into that education stream? Yeah. Yeah. I was kind of dabbling between speech language pathology and education, but there, there was sort of a, a key moment, I guess. Um, once I was sure I wanted to go into education, I had this key moment in my undergrad where I thought, okay, yeah, this is definitely what I want to do. Um, there was one day where I, I was still doing my bachelor of arts, but I was doing a lot of education courses because I wanted to fast track the degree. So when I was doing my Bachelor of Arts, I took a lot of education courses as um, electives. Mm -hmm. And there was one day I was in the education building at the University of Alberta, which is where I went for my linguistics degree and my education degree. Anyhow, one day I was walking through campus in the education building and I see this poster and it says, are you interested in educational research? Sign up for the Roger Smith Undergraduate Research Award. I thought, oh, okay, that's interesting. I've, you know, I've had friends who've done research before outside of education. And I was kind of like, I didn't even know there were educational or research opportunities within the faculty of education. So I was looking at this poster and it said, you know, there's a bunch of research opportunities within the faculty of education at the University of Alberta. And then there was like a QR code where you could look at the projects and then sign up. And I looked through all the project, but there's one project in particular that caught my eye immediately. And I thought, okay, I need to apply for this. The project was called Evidence-Based Practices in Early Reading Acquisition. And I thought, oh, okay, that's definitely up my alley there. And I gave this paragraph saying that, you know, evidence shows that, and this was at the time in 2019, Evidence shows that a significant amount of children experience reading difficulties and that um, we need to do more to ensure that we're closing the gap with learning loss and language difficulties. And this is pre-COVID, right? So even before COVID, you know, illiteracy was an issue, right? And so the purpose of the project um, these researchers wanted to develop a resource guide that would include evidence-based materials for grade one teachers to use. And it said that this, what a research assistant would be doing would be making this resource to help give grade one teachers at some school divisions within Alberta, some pretty prominent big school divisions with resources that um, follows evidence-based practices. 
So I thought, okay, you know what, I'll, I'll just apply. And if I don't get it, the worst thing is I just don't get it. Right. And I, I can move on with my life. So um, I filled out the Google form. I submitted my application. I wrote a cover letter. I gave them my resume and then I didn't hear back. Ah, gosh, I think it was a few weeks. And then I got an email from a lovely individual named Christy Dunn. And she introduced herself as Christy Dunn, and she said she's a PhD student, and that her and her research supervisor wanted to interview me for this project. And I remember in the email, she really emphasized that this project was going to be big, right? Like, we're making a resource for hundreds of grade one teachers at two very prominent school divisions in Alberta. So I was really nervous. I realized that was a lot of pressure. Um... But I thought, okay, you know what, I'm going to do the interview. I brought forward some experiences that I had, you know, I, you know, I, I don't even think I talked about the air cadet program, but I talked about having a linguistics background. And I think that was the thing that these researchers were really interested in because I had that, I was grateful to have that background in phonetics and phonology and mm -hmm. syntax and semantics, all things that are really prominent in literacy. Um, I talked about my work with respite, um, working with children who had developmental disabilities or cognitive disabilities, et cetera. Um, and then they hired me and I would be working with Christy Dunn and Dr. George Giorgio, which is, I feel, a really big name amongst Alberta teachers right now. And I got to yes. work with him back in 2019. Um, for those of you who don't know, he's really um, helped create the Alberta English Language Arts curriculum. He had a lot of advice to give, um, and he's been working a lot with school boards across Alberta, and I believe, I believe in some school, yeah, in BC, and I even want to say Ontario, too, and I know he's done some work in Quebec as well. Um, so he's quite the big guy. Um, and I got to work with them back in 2019. So I was selected as their Roger Smith recipient. So basically the Roger Smith program, it was a scholarship given out to University of Alberta students to do um, research work. And you're given a scholarship to help with the funding, etc. So it was really great. You know, I I finished my Bachelor of Arts degree. I got a research job. Um, I, had, I was working over the summer. I was learning lots about the development of literacy. And I had the guidance of Christy Dunn and George Giorgio to really help bring this resource together. I worked a lot with teachers um, at these two prominent school divisions who were grade one teachers um, in Alberta. I worked with uh, superintendents, literacy consultants, principals to really bring this resource together and give it to our grade one teachers in the province and basically do direct instruction with them. Um, and that's really, you know, what I think it was at that moment that was really pivotal and okay, I could see myself doing this for quite a long time, which now I'm in my third year of teaching and I'm still just as passionate. So, yes. So during your education degree, was the, the courses that you were taking in reading and literacy in line with what you were doing with your research? 
So I did research before my education degree, um, yeah. right? So after I finished my research work with Dr. Giorgio, I mean, I did continue on with him later on, but for the Roger Smith Award, it was just during the summer. And then mm. as my elective, it's really interesting because at the University of Alberta, um, there's one course called EDPY, which stands for Educational Psychology. I believe it's EDPY 45. Oh, I don't remember the exact number, but anyway, it's all about um, assessment and programming for students with learning and reading difficulties. So at the time, Dr. Giorgio was teaching this course, but I think there are some other professors within educational psychology who teach this course right now. Mm -hmm. um, so this course, I, it, it teach, taught me everything about the science of reading, the five pillars, phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, vocabulary, and comprehension. And the course was nicely laid out into two areas, assessment and mm -hmm. intervention. So how do we know when a child has learning difficulties? What areas are we assessing exactly? And once we have these assessments with standardized assessments, how do we go forward, right? We do these assessments. We see that the child has difficulty, let's say, with... Um, their vocab development or their comprehension, but they are scoring well in the phonics area. They do, they read a non-word assessment, right? Where they're reading non-words. They, let's say they do really great. And then we go to their section that tests their comprehension and their scores are poor. How do we go forward from that? What sort of intervention do we want to have in place? So the course mm -hmm. really, it's out of all the course that, courses I taken at the University of Alberta, this was the one that really helped my degree and helped make me the teacher that I am today. And it's the reason why I've been fortunate enough to have a lot of background knowledge because, you know, I don't think for myself, you know, as a first year teacher, I walked in and I had the knowledge because I took that course, but this course at the university is not mandatory. I took it as an elective. So I wish that it was mandatory because I think then a lot of teachers would be equipped with their understanding of the science of reading. I'm really grateful for all the opportunities that I had with George and that I got to take these courses. And, you know, I work for a fantastic district that still works with Dr. Giorgio. And, you know, I get a lot of that information that I learned back in 2019 when I was doing my undergrad, right? But unfortunately, this course specifically is an elective. I don't believe that it is mandatory to take. So yes, definitely, I I would hope in the future that it becomes something that teachers, like it's a mandatory thing that they have to have for sure. Yeah, so what about the mandatory literacy course? Or did you have one in your degree that you had to take on learning mm -hmm. read, reading I, and writing? I did have one. And it, it's really interesting because... Um, I think there are parts of it that, you know, were okay, but I, I don't think it really addressed the science of reading. I, I remember learning about phonemic awareness and I remember learning about the definition of phonics, but we didn't really dive into it. You know, it was just, this is what phonemic awareness is. This is what phonics is. And, you know, um, I remember 
learning about activities you can do for, okay, say you have a picture book, what's a writing activity you can do, et cetera. But I don't think it really dived into the science of reading. They were cute activities, absolutely. But I was almost like, I need a direct instruction, right? We're always telling, you know, as a science of reading teacher, direct instruction is paramount to teaching literacy. Yeah. And I felt like I wasn't getting direct instruction from the mandatory courses. So I do think that they need to have a revamp for sure. Yeah, well, I, I can't remember who said it, but someone said explicit teaching requires explicit knowledge. Exactly. 100%. And so the, the cohort of teachers that you would have gone through recently still do, don't have that strong background in the science of reading or structured language and literacy, whatever term you want to go with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, are probably in that situation that many first year teachers are in sink or swim. Okay. Yeah, so I know what to do once they're reading, but how do I get them to that reading point? Mm -hmm. I remember in my program, it was, oh, don't worry. They'll just, they'll figure it out. They, they'll figure it out. Uh, and uh, I'm like, well, what about the ones that don't? And yeah. they're like, oh, well, that's what education's for. <laughs> don't know about that and you know yeah I, I I honestly feel empathetic towards these teachers who are in their first year and they don't have the knowledge because I, I genuinely feel that you know teaching is such a, a helpful profession teachers want to help kids they want to do this right they it, I think it would just devastate teachers completely to know that okay maybe I even veteran teachers like I was equipped with strategies that didn't follow cognitive science right no teacher intentionally wants to do this right it really is a systemic issue um, that goes back to teacher training and it's I really don't think it's the teacher's fault. And, you know, I, I think any teacher, regardless of where you are in your profession, whether you're a first year teacher or a veteran teacher, you know, unfortunately, because so many of us don't have the background in the science of reading, we just have to have that growth mindset and, okay, you know what, maybe a practice that I did, you know, a few years ago, it, it's not working and it doesn't follow cognitive science. So I'm going to do better. So I don't know who's listening out there, but if anyone here, regardless of where you are in your career, wherever your journey is, just having that growth mindset, you know, and even myself, someone who's really fortunate enough to have just grown with the science of reading and got that training in my undergrad, right? Even there's times mm -hmm. where I go, okay, you know what, that didn't work. I'm going to try this instead. Or you know what, I thought that followed the cognitive science. I read a paper, it didn't. So I'm going to go with something else, right? And I just think the growth mindset is key in this situation, this, um, you know, cultural shift, if you will, going to the science of reading. Well, and as educators, whether you recognize it or not, you're signing up to be a lifelong learner, right? Because our, our knowledge is constantly evolving and we want our practices to get better and better with what we have knowing in the profession based on all of these different uh, features and components that we've learned through research. Absolutely. So even though you had this first couple of years, did you, have you felt like there's still a lot that you're learning and a lot that you need to do? That's a good question. I, 
I've definitely grown a lot. And, you know, I, I would say that I'm still learning every single day. I definitely have the solid foundation. You know, I do direct instruction with phonemic awareness, direct instruction with phonics and fluency and vocabulary, right? I, you know, have grouped my students in literacy centers that follow the five pillars of reading. I pull them out, do tier two intervention. I look at their scores and base off my tier two instruction off of how they're doing in those scores. I follow a scope and sequence, right? But, you know, things are never perfect. I mean, as a teacher, you're also, you know, thinking back to my first year, right? You're not just teaching literacy, you're teaching math, you're teaching science, you've got a lot on the go, right? And so, um, you know, I'm still learning things every day, right? I, you know, you try a program or you try an activity, you realize, you know, what, with this group of kids might not work, I'm going to do this yeah. instead, right? And it, that's, that's the nice thing about teaching is you get to meet these unique kiddos who all have their diverse strengths, they all have their diverse needs, and you kind of pivot, you have to be super, super flexible, right? So, you know, I'm, it's always changing, it's growing, but I do kind of have my solid foundation of, okay, as long as I'm following the five pillars, as long as I'm following a scope and sequence, you know, I'm doing direct instruction, even direct assessment. So I know exactly what graphing to phoneme correspondences they need to learn. Like, I always make sure to have that um, foundation in my classroom for sure. Do you feel with the workload that you're, you're having right now in the first few years, you could manage learning about the science of reading for the first time at the same time or would that just completely I know. I, you know. too much because there's so many teachers in that situation that are realizing at whatever point like the first five years are really you're learning so much you yes. know with the different classroom management and strategies and you can't yeah have to wait until the following year to do it differently right so then having because learning about the science of reading or best practices and in reading instruction. It's not like just picking up one book and going through it. It's a very involved, intensive process, right? Mm -hmm. Actually, you know, thanks for bringing that up. Cause I was thinking about that the other day too. Um, at my school district, we want to start, you know, we've been really focusing on the science of reading as a school division, which is awesome. But now we're also focusing on our numeracy, right? And, you know, we do these assessments for the government of Alberta all about numeracy. And so we want to focus on that too. So, you know, we're trying to do tier two pullout and tier two intervention for numeracy. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, thank gosh, I, you know, have that background because that would be so much as a teacher to you know, learn about the science of reading, right? Again, as you said, it's not just like I read a book and I go, oh, okay, I know everything, right? It's it's a lifelong journey, right? So learning about the science of reading, um, you know, managing your classroom, doing a numeracy intervention, don't forget to teach science and social and art and phys ed and, you know, make sure you're caring for all your students and addressing behaviors and addressing needs and building up those strengths. It would be a lot, you know, it would be so tough. And so I commend teachers with whatever stage they're at in their science of reading. I, I truly commend it because it is a lot to take on. And I think if I had any advice for teachers, just take it 
one step at a time. And, you know, it's okay. One to, pillar at a time too. <laughs> one pillar. Yeah, actually, that's a good idea. One pillar at a time. And, you know, I think you just have to give yourself that grace and patience as you would with your students, right? We always give our students grace and patience with whatever it is that they're learning, writing, math, reading. I wouldn't expect a student who, you know, struggles with reading to just get it like that. So we have to give ourselves that grace too and just take it one step at a time. That's what I tell myself. But I know it can be hard because as teachers, you really do want to do everything for your students, right? It's it's more than just a job, right? It's it's almost like a calling, which is, I mean, kind of cheesy when I say it out loud, but it's true, right? Like people who go into teachings because they genuinely want to work with kids and they want to build the people of society, like the next leaders. So but I think you you just have to have a growth mindset and you have to take it one step at a time, right? And, you know, that's what I try to do every day, right? Even with now we're doing numeracy interventions and I'm going, okay, like I'm really racking my brain. How do I get started with this? But one step at a time, I'm going to pull out one group. We're going to do this activity. And then maybe tomorrow I'll pull up two groups right? Mm -hmm. Just one step at a time and it slowly, slowly becomes easier, but you got to put in the work too, right? I mean, you know, with the science of reading stuff, I find myself on a lot of Facebook groups and Facebook pages that are all about science of reading so that I can learn different articles, etc. right? I actually, so funny story, I, I'm just thinking kind of out loud. Um, I remember once a, um, a colleague had suggested um, we're, we were using this program with vocabulary words and it was um I wanted to teach the students um oh you know what I think it was like a, a phonics program where you like sort the words and I remember one of the activities that you could do was it was called consonant vowel writing so you highlight your vowels in one color and your consonants in another um mm -hmm. And so I started to have the kids do that every week, like, okay, they're given a list of words and they have to write it down in their notebook. And then I read an article about how, you know, when we think about the science of reading, that's a really good activity if you're teaching vowels and consonants, but otherwise it doesn't really teach students, you know, phonemic decoding skills skills. Mm -hmm. so, okay. You know what? I'm just going to save that lesson for when we do vowel consonant instruction and I'm not going to use it every week or every day, only when we're teaching vowels and consonants. And it was just because I read a research paper about um, different strategies you can use to follow the science of reading. So again, mm -hmm. it's just, you know, here I am with a background doing research and, you know, doing courses on the science of reading. And then I find myself going, oh, you know what, that practice I used that one time, maybe it's not the best. I'll, I'll try something else, right? So it's, it's all about having that growth mindset and okay, you know what, that didn't work. Next time I'll try something else. Well, and recognizing what you were trying to do in the lesson. And I think this is essential, especially when it comes to working with students with neurodiversities and different strengths and weaknesses, understanding the goal of the lesson, because if it's not actually getting the student there, or if what you are asking them to do isn't helping progress them to that goal, then you need to kind of sit back 
and rethink what you're doing. So what I'm specifically thinking about is those students that have specific learning disabilities or um, maybe they have a written output issue. And if you're trying to actually have them practice their letter formation and write the words themselves, then that's a great activity. But if you're trying to figure out the content that they can produce, maybe the activity of them actually writing it down themselves isn't the best situation to try and assess their ideas. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, even having a, a really good understanding of your curriculum too helps. And I know Alberta, I don't know if you guys have this in BC, but we have like a brand new curriculum for- No, we, we need an updated one. Okay. So we just had an updated one and it's broken down into phonemic awareness, phonics, vocabulary, comprehension, writing, and it has all these different areas. Um, and I think it really comes down to understanding the terminology in the um, curriculum. And that to me is what really helps me to know, okay, what am I going to assess these kiddos on? Or, you know, in Alberta, for instance, we use the, at my school division, at least we use the T-series assessments. Mm -hmm. um, so this is the TAURI, the TOES rack, um, and the TAURI assess, you know, the phonemic decoding skills. For those of you who don't know, it's basically just a list of words and there's a bunch of- 45 seconds. Yeah, yeah, you have to read it in 45 seconds and then you flip the page and then it's non-words or as I may sometimes say to my students, silly words, right? They're mm -hmm. nonsense words, but they follow the English language rules, right? And so mm. when you test the students, you put it into a database, it gives them a standardized score and it shows whether they are below grade level, on the cusp of grade level, at grade level or above grade level. And that's one of the things I like about those assessments is it color codes the students. So I know, okay, you know, uh, Jane, for instance, is you know, she did really well on her sight word test, but when it came to the silly words and the non-words, she didn't score as well. So that tells me she has a good understanding of her sight words, but does she understand the phonetic patterns with mm -hmm. it? So maybe I need to do more phonics pullout work with her. And I'll talk a little bit about this too on Friday or Thursday, one of the days, but um, one of the resources I use is the Phonics Companion, and I helped develop a lot of these initial lessons back in 2021. Um, but what's really great about this resource is it has a quick screener. So it has the 100, oh, I think it's uh, 120. It has the most recent or the most prominent used graphene to phoneme correspondences. So the most prominent letter sound combinations in the English language. And basically what it is, is you hold up a card. So let's say I hold up, um, let me think, like CH, right? And I would say to the student, what sound does this letter or letter combination make? And if they say, Ch, they get a check mark. And I put that on my little assessment. And then if they don't make the sound, I'll just give it a circle. And if I stop the assessment after the first six. So then I know, okay, so Jane, for instance. Um, the first six incorrect is the ceiling. So it's yeah. not the, the first six. You, you yeah. go through all of them until you get six yeah. wrong. Six wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let me just pull up a page here. 
Um, so then it might be easier for me to see. So yeah, this the suspense right here. And it follows mm -hmm. the phonics companion scope and sequence, right? So I hold up the letter A and I go, okay, what sound does this letter or letter combination make? And then if they get at least one right, I move on. What sound does this letter letter combination make? It shows the letter T, so it makes the T sound. What sound does this letter combination make? It shows S, S can make the S or Z sound, right? And then you keep going. And then once they get six consecutive ones in a row incorrect, that's when I go, okay, I'm going to stop here. And I do this with all my students. So I'll do it at the beginning of the year, in the middle and at the end. And it gives me a general idea of, okay, when it comes to phonics, especially for those kids who are struggling readers or on the cusp, right? I know, okay, so-and-so is struggling with these graphene to phoneme correspondences and so-and-so is struggling with these graphemes. So maybe when I'm doing centers, I can pull them out at my U table and I can explicitly target. And what I like about this resource um, that really helps me is that I'm not guessing. I know exactly what Grapheme to phoneme correspondence says the students are struggling with. I'm not just going, ah, oh, you know, digraphs are about grade two level, right? Grade two age. Well, unfortunately, the reality of teaching now is we have a lot of diverse needs and we can't just always go, you know, follow grade two. You got to follow with the child, right? The child is struggling with their short vowels. You teach them short vowels. Even if they're in grade Whether they're two. in grade two or grade 12. Exactly, right? You meet the child where they're at. It doesn't matter the grade level. And I think that's something even myself I struggle with. You think, oh, I got to go with the grade level. Nope, you got to go with where the kid's at, right? So anyway, that's one of my favorite resources to use. And I use it three times a year. Well, and I think it's important to highlight that it's important that you are the one using it and not having someone coming in your classroom and doing it for you because the information that it gives you as a teacher is um, so valuable. And it really helps you plan what you're going to do next and have a better understanding of where your students are at. And I know, you know there's been a lot of discussion about the importance of screening and it's definitely something that different schools are doing, but sometimes they have you know parachuting in professionals. And it's a skill that needs to be learned. It's school that is skill that needs support developing. And it's great if your um, principal or vice principal has knowledge of helping you interpret how to create the groups uh, when you need the support. But it's better that you do it because you can see it. And even when, you, when you're doing those, the Tauri, um, you know, the uh, real words and the, the pseudo words, mm -hmm. um, it's, getting that information and actually seeing their brain work in the process yeah. is so much better because it's, it's different than the time that you see them in the, the whole group or the small group instruction because you're getting that one-on-one -on -one time with them and it doesn't take a lot of time going forward. No, it doesn't. And the data is so essential with knowing what you're going to do next. It truly informs my practice, truly. And then, you know, even with the quick screener, just for the phonics companion, let's say if we're working on some letter sounds and I go, you know what, I'm just going to reassess just to make sure. Right. And you progress might, monitoring. yeah, your progress monitoring. Exactly. Right. And 
that's, you know, that is something I learned a lot in my undergrad is that at formative assessment, summative assessment, but formative repeat, 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 right? Because there's always growth and we always have to reassess. Yeah. And I, again, that helps shape your practice in the classroom and shape your understanding of the students. And as anyone gets more experience with a phonics program or working with students and working with the assessments, while each student is unique, you see some trends and it can alert you to things to work, look out for in the future. Mm -hmm. um, and especially when we're talking at a more risk students, hearing it in their speech and how yeah. they communicate can be a real cue. And especially if we do some of the more um, higher phonological awareness and phonemic awareness tasks. I mean, one of my favorite tests for that is a, um, the elision test from the comprehensive test of phonological processing. Right. Because you can see where they're getting stuck and breaking up a word. Can they break a word, like a compound word up into its individual words? Mm -hmm. Can they break a two-syllable word up into two syllables? Mm -hmm. Right. And then figuring out what point in the word they're struggling to hear the sounds. Mm -hmm. Right. Is it the beginning, the end, the middle? And that can help inform your practice so much when you have the experience to do it. But that's where having that mentorship to help you along the way mm -hmm. to recognize. Yeah. We're really, really lucky in our district because we get a lot of PD from Dr. Giorgio and this is very interesting to me. We get a lot of PD from our speech language pathologists too. And that's mm -hmm. something I feel that a lot of school boards and a lot of teachers, like we need to have that collaboration, you know, with yeah. our speech language pathologists, right? Expressive and receptive vocabulary or um, expressive and receptive skills are yeah. so key, right? And so connected to literacy development and, you know, um, I attended a PD a few months ago, and it was all about uh, literacy, the science of reading, etc. It was run by our literacy consultants who've received a lot of collaboration with Dr. Giorgio. But then we had our speech language pathologist come up and she taught us how to use this program called Story Champs. I don't know if you heard of it, but it's basically working with students' expressive and receptive um, language skills. And they taught us how we could use it within the classroom and how we can, it, it basically helps students with their comprehension too. You read a story, you talk about um, where, who are the characters, what's the setting, describe the story, what was the, um, the problem in the story, how do they resolve the problem. You use little hand actions. So I think, I don't even remember it. I think setting was like this. So you ask the kids, what's the setting and anyway but what's really cool about it is apparently and maybe someone could correct me if I'm wrong but our speech language pathologists at our district said a lot of speech language pathologists in Alberta who are private may use this resource called story champs so it's really cool that we're using a resource that a lot of SLPs would use when they're doing private speech outside of school so I, I just I feel really lucky and I feel really blessed to have a school division that sees um, the benefits of, you know, not just working with teachers and literacy consultants, but also speech language patho pathologists, right? 
And again, I feel like that's aligning my interests as someone, hello, with a Bachelor of Arts degree in linguistics, right? So I, I just see the connections there and it, it's very prominent, very strong. So I'm, I'm so grateful that I work with a district that sees the importance and the relevance of this. Well, and if you go back to, you know, reading theory, looking at the simple view of reading or Scarborough's reading rope, it sounds like Story Champ is best is very much working on that language comprehension piece that's going to build to the reading comprehension piece. Yes, absolutely, for sure. And uh, it's definitely a way, you know, a lot of the naysayers uh, for the science of reading and structured language and literacy are saying, well, you're not including comprehension instruction. But in fact, you should be. It's definitely important and it can be done early on. Yeah, uh, but we're also seeing that we're incorporating it as the language comprehension piece. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I liked about that Story Champs resource that our SLPs use is these stories will actually highlight key vocabulary. So we're talking about our tier two vocabulary and you go, oh, okay, perfect. It's already done for me. I just show mm -hmm. that up on my smart board, we say the word, we write it down, we use it in a sentence, we act it out, and it already has it done for you. And again, right, you're, you're building in that reading piece. I mean, the, you could write it down or you could listen, but the kids are still learning new vocabulary, right? And that's something they can apply in their spoken language or with their writing or their reading, right? So it's all interconnected for sure. Right. So I'm really excited because it sounds like you're having a great start to your learning as a teacher. I mean, you're still in your first five years and you've covered so much already and just the potential is limitless. And you definitely have that desire to learn more, which is which is great. Um, so what do you feel are your next steps for your learning? That's a good question. Um I'm ready to move on to science of writing, if you if you so call it that. But I'm reading. Um, I'm currently reading the Writing Revolution. I don't know if you've heard of that book, but it's basically um, it's apply. It's basically direct instruction with writing. So you start way at the beginning with what is a sentence, right? There's subject. There's a verb. There's a predicate. Um, punctuation, like you're going back to square one. And it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier, where you meet the child where they're at. And so when we look at, you know, students writing abilities, there's a lot of students who don't even know what a sentence is. And they could even be in sixth grade, seventh grade, even high school, according to this book. You know, there are so many students who just need to go back and go, okay, what is a sentence, right? And what's interesting about it, it's almost like it's taking that vocabulary piece. So again, science of reading, what it is, is it's, it's emphasizing the fact that when we teach writing, we don't have to teach writing separately. Like a lot of teachers will have, okay, like, you know, literacy centers and then, oh, it's writing block now, but you don't have to do that, right? If you have a science or social curriculum, you can teach writing interwining it into the curriculum, right? And that's a great way to test for comprehension with um, your curriculum. So for example, let's say I'm teaching um, 
don't know, I'm teaching, I don't know, in social, I'm teaching about um, Ikawit and the Inuktitut language, right? So what I would do is I would show on the board, I'd say, okay, well, what is Inuktitut? Inuktitut is a language spoken in Nunavut. So then I may write a sentence incorrectly on the board. I'm missing capitals. I don't have a period or I'm missing a key word, right? Inuktitut, a language, right? And then I showed the sentence to the kids and they go, well, no, that's not a sentence. Well, how do I make it a sentence, right? Well, you have to have a capital and a period. And I go, okay, right, great. So then what I want you to do is, you know, say we're learning about, um, different resources that are in Ikawit, right? So I'd write down an incorrect sentence and then they fix it and I go, okay, well now it's your turn. I want you to write one full sentence talking about the resources in Ikawit, right? Um, and then that's a great way for me to test their comprehension. If we're talking about resources there, can they, when I read their writing, can they write what a resource is there? Um, and can they do capitals? Can they do periods? Do they have a subject? Do they have a verb? Do they have a predicate, right? And it's just repeat, 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 but starting at the sentence level. And once they have a good solid foundation of what a sentence is, they can produce a sentence, then we can move further, right? So we can move into uh, coordinating conjunctions, things like that. So that's kind of my next step is I feel, you know, I. I have my foundation of the science of reading and I'm ready to move on to direct instruction in writing, starting at the sentence level and including it, incorporating it within my curriculum rather than having a separate writing block, so to speak. So that's the writing revolution, which is what I'm currently reading. And then the writing rope the is time. What's you're that? including at the same time you're including information about the syntax and semantics of the English language, which is then going to improve their comprehension. Yeah. Right. So I think the thing that we really need to start getting across in, in the science of reading community, if you want to call it that, is really it's best practices for instruction and weaving everything together. You still do have your dedicated. Uh, literacy time, especially in those early grades to help teach them the skills. Yeah. But then as we get more advanced, we're including all of this instruction together. And especially when we look at things like morphological awareness, morphological awareness is a perfect crossover topic because mm -hmm. it's so easy to integrate with science and social studies. Because it, it, when we look at academic language, it's, I think it's over like 90% of it is based on Latin and Greek morphemes. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, when we incorporate, just going back to the writing instruction too, right? You're looking for ways of assessment. Well, just interwind the writing instruction into other facets of your curriculum and see what written work they produce. That will really tell you if they're understanding it or not, right? And are they using those vocabulary words that you're teaching them? And again, you know, going back to vocabulary, right? Science social, there's tons of opportunities to pull out tier two words for vocabulary, et cetera, right? If I'm teaching um, states of matter, right? What is a solid? Can you tell me what that is? I can, you know, directly present it to the kids, right? And see if they can reproduce it in their writing or their spoken language or in their reading, right? It's, it's all interconnected, which is fantastic. Definitely.
Thank you so much for joining me today, Andrea. I'm really looking forward to our next conversation where we're seeing what are the things that you actually use in your classroom. I'm really excited. I think that one's going to be my favorite. And, you know, I, I have a lot of resources and I feel like they keep growing and sometimes they change, but that's the one I'm most excited about. And I'll be in my classroom so I can just pull resources and quickly show everyone. Wonderful. Thank you.